Galatians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to look at verse 11. We're just going to read a couple verses, and then we're going to kind of pick up really where we left off last Sunday, if you join me. Verse 11, Galatians 2 now, Paul writing to the churches in Galatia, when Peter had come to Antioch, so Paul is writing of a past event. When Peter had come to Antioch, Paul writes that I was stood into his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, and James was one of the leaders in the church of Jerusalem, Peter would eat with the Gentiles. But when these men came, Peter withdrew and separated himself, fearing the Jews, or those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with Peter. Even Barnabas, Paul writes, who was his ministry companion, even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But, Paul writing, when I saw that they were not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to now live as Jews? Now, I want to recap exactly what's taking place in this exchange using a little creative license because this is a multi-level uh, confrontation. There's a lot of things happening. And so I'm going to use a little creative license because I don't want you to miss really the shocking nature of the confrontation and what's happening. Imagine that you're Peter. And let's say, for sake of illustration, that you're white. And you're sitting at a table, a lunch table, one Sunday afternoon, enjoying a nice pork chop, cooked in pig fat, covered with bacon, with a group of missionaries who've just come into town from Africa. You're white, breaking bread, with black men. When you catch word that coming to the restaurant is two of your white, supremacist, vegan-loving, Christian friends. We'll just call them brothers Whitey McFly and Roscoe Arian. They're going to come and kind of break up the party. Now, you know, right, that we're all saved by grace, sanctified by grace, that the gospel declares gloriously grace and grace alone. That Jesus, as a result, has made us all one people. That there's fundamentally no difference between Jew or Gentile or blacks or whites. And you're also aware that Jesus' work on the cross has liberated us from any dietary restrictions of veganism. You're free to eat whatever you want with whomever you want. But you're also aware that these brothers, brothers Waddy McFly and Roscoe Arian, not only find eating meat, especially pork, to be repulsive, as, you know, they view their vegan lifestyle as more pleasing to God, but they also see the mixing of race as kind of an equal abomination. You know, God created each according to their kind, they would say. Now, this places you into kind of a precarious position. Since you don't want to cause a stir, you don't want to ruffle anyone's feathers, you would prefer to maintain unity in the church. So you decide, so as not to offend those weaker brothers, that when they show up, you get up from the black table and you go and sit at the white, white table. And before you do this, you instruct this group of African missionaries 
that, you know, they're really no longer allowed to eat the pork that they're eating and should really, for unity, only eat nuts and berries. Now, clearly, right, this dynamic would be outlandish, if not downright repulsive, outrageous. And yet, no. A, this is exactly what Peter was doing. This was his attitude. This was the nature of his actions. And secondly, you can understand why Paul would be so upset. I mean, Peter, you're the first pope. This is unacceptable. You can't act like this. What you're doing is wrong. Like, Paul's rage would be justifiable. It would be, it would be right. And to make matters worse, I mean, really, this is Peter, okay? Like, don't miss that. Like, okay, as a Christian, he represents Jesus. But beyond that, Peter was an apostle man, not just one of the 12, but one of the three, the inner circle. Like, Peter possessed significant authority within the church. Peter was famous. He was significant. He had influence within Christianity at large. He wrote scripture. And yet the sad tale is that Peter's actions here were not Christ-like at all. In actuality, the way that he handled the situation in Antioch ran counterintuitive to absolutely every glorious message that the gospel preached. It was flat out wrong. This not only explains why Paul is so incensed by Peter's actions, but it also explains why he felt an obligation to confront Peter in a public way. As a matter of fact, in some regards, kind of a brazen way. Paul believed that this was not a matter, like what Peter was doing was not a matter that he could, you know, pull Peter aside, that they could handle as brothers privately. He, he, he believed that this was so outlandish that he had to address it publicly in front of everyone. That's what the text tells us happens. There is no question that Paul felt a responsibility to act swiftly and decisively. And here's why. He feared someone might get a false impression by Peter's actions that in some ways they were justified or that that's what the gospel was about. See, from Paul's perspective, in this moment, I believe without a doubt, he saw the gospel message as experiencing maybe its greatest assault. They were in dangerous territory. A respected man of God, like Peter, and to a lesser extent, Paul's friend Barnabas, acting in such a detestable way would have set a terrible precedent. If this situation went unaddressed, Paul feared that it could have completely undermined what had already been settled back in Acts chapter 15. For more of that, you'd have to go back to last Sunday's message. And what really amazes me about this entire situation, and the reason that it demands our consideration, is that the specific issue that Paul was taking Peter to task about is relevant to us. Look back at the text. Paul writes of this event. He says, quote, I said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Like, for just a second, you notice what's missing by his rebuke? Amazingly, what upset Paul 
more than anything else, including Peter's blatant racism, was his hypocrisy and active limitation of Christian liberty. That's what really ticked him off. The limiting of liberty was an issue for Paul that transcended even racial bigotry. Now, don't get me wrong. This Jewish bigotry towards the Gentiles had no place in the church then, nor does it have a place in the church today. And yet that's not the issue that Paul decides to go after Peter for. Instead, he targets the, quote, manner in which they were living. Before everyone in the audience that day, Paul, he's basically saying, Peter, bro, if you as a good Jew have no problems eating things that are unkosher, then why are you asking Gentiles to now forgo that very liberty? This doesn't make any sense. Like, imagine that. Paul's approach would be similar to, to me coming up to you, someone who just left the, 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 the black table for the white table, and instead of rebuking you for that, taking you to task for the fact that you went back to the black table and said they couldn't eat pork chops. Like, that's the essence of what's happening. Now, why does Paul find this topic to be so important? Last Sunday, we addressed how fear, fear not faith, is often the driver behind the limitation of Christian liberty. And yet you should understand that, that fear is not the only motivator. Sadly, there are many Christians who seek to limit liberty and minimize the, the incredible freedom of grace, period, from a false position of moral superiority. Like, realize, the motivation behind the Jewish bigotry towards the Gentiles, really rested in a false belief that their obedience and adherence to the law of Moses, specifically circumcision and dietary restrictions, made them morally superior to any Christians that didn't engage in those two practices. The bigotry that the Jews had to the Gentiles found itself rooted in the idea that because I'm circumcised and I adhere to the dietary restrictions, I'm better than those who don't. That's the essence of it. And it's this reality that explains why instead of addressing Peter's bigotry, Paul targets the root of his bigotry. Paul had to act because Peter's act of limiting the liberty of these Gentiles would have in turn substantiated the very reasoning that had fostered their false sense of Jewish moral superiority over the Gentiles. In a sense, it was a perversion of God's grace. And yet, since obeying the law, and we've talked about this, gospel distortions. Anytime you replace the period of grace alone, grace period, with a comma, you're in dangerous territory. And most people, we enter into legalism when we remove that period. It's not just grace and grace alone, but it's grace, comma, and, okay, here are the, here's some things to do. It's grace and do these things. That's a gospel distortion. Another way it manifests is to say grace, comma, but don't do these things. Once again, you're adding and subtracting things from grace, when it should just be grace, period. Now, on a side note, it can also be grace, comma, so I could do anything, a different distortion for another reason. And yet, since obeying the law has no bearing according to the gospel 
on one standing before God. Please know that. The law has no bearing on your standing before God, nor does it play a role in maintaining that standing before God. Paul's challenge of Peter here ends up being aimed at emphasizing an important reality that Peter had absolutely no reason, no justification to, quote, compel Gentiles to live as Jews. That's the essence of what he's saying. Now, it's to this point that I'd like to speak to an issue that constantly surfaces. Anytime you talk about Christian liberty, anytime, in church, out of church, with friends, with acquaintances, it doesn't really matter. Anytime you talk about Christian liberty, there's always one specific topic that always emerges. Like one grand illustration when you talk about liberty. You know what it is? You want to take a guess? Alcohol. Constantly. You talk about Christian liberty, the default, well, let's talk about alcohol. As if that's the only Christian liberty. And yet, because culturally this becomes relevant, we're going to kind of illustrate what's happening using this particular topic. Now, before I, before I continue, I do want to, in just kind of an attempt to be fully transparent with anyone here, whether this is your first time, your thousandth time, whatever. A few things for transparency. Every elder at Calvary 316 drinks alcohol. Full disclosure, including me. And none of us hide that reality. Like, we, we really do believe the you can drink as long as no one knows you drink. That approach is, is, is very dangerous. It keeps things hidden. It eliminates accountability. Not to mention, it's kind of hypocritical. We all drink. It's open. It's public. It's not something we attempt to conceal from view. Furthermore, before we get to this topic, alcohol is not something that's addressed or discussed with any type of, of frequency at Calvary 316. Like you might have been coming for months and this is the first time you've heard us talk about alcohol. And there's a reason. First, it's not something we promote. Honestly, it would grieve me in my soul for Calvary 316 to be known as the drinking church. Or, or, or worse yet, me to be known as the drinking pastor. Honestly, I just want to be known as a Jesus freak who holds fast to the reality that God's grace changes anything and everything. What I want to be known for is not the fact that I enjoy a beer, but that I love Jesus. I think we can all say that with our church. However, we don't promote it, but we do address it when the scriptures present it. And as a result, because alcohol ties into this topic of liberty, it's kind of a perfect illustration, and thus we're going to kind of dig into this. Personally, I find Paul's approach in this passage helpful. I find it helpful for this larger discussion because there's really no difference between Peter's instructions that these Gentiles were to lay aside their liberty of eating kosher and the predominant position held by many fundamental Christians that believers should abstain from drinking alcohol. Both positions end up being rooted in the same place. For example, I'm going to kind of employ a little exercise. If you were to take the passage we just read and replace eating kosher with drinking alcohol, let me read you Galatians 2, verses 11 through 14, and maybe a different way. Now, when Peter, Paul writes, 
had come to Antioch, I was stood into his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James who took issue with Christians drinking alcohol, Peter would enjoy a beer with the Gentiles. But when these teetotalers came from Jerusalem, Peter put down his beer, and he separated himself from those who were still drinking, fearing those who found this liberty offensive. And the rest of the Jews, who were also enjoying their liberty by drinking with the Gentiles, meaning they also liked beer, they were carried away in this hypocrisy as well. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew, enjoy beer in the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews who abstain, why do you compel Gentiles to now abstain? Take one, plug it in with the other. Same idea, same root. Don't get me wrong. I'm not ignorant to the potential damage, and the damage is real that the abuse of alcohol can have in a person's life and the life of their family. Like, it is an undeniable reality that our society, by and large, has a drinking problem, one that needs to be addressed. It's also true that in love, Christians should wisely consider how we enjoy this liberty in the presence of those who've had a history with, with substance abuse. We should consider that. And yet, what irritates me most is the fact that many who preach the prohibition of alcohol do so, do so from a position of moral superiority. Sadly, instead of an honest discussion as to the way in which the Bible addresses alcohol abuse, that it's a sinful manifestation of much deeper spiritual issues, or a discussion of the way in which the church can effectively help people struggling with alcoholism. That the reality is 12 steps will fail when it's only Jesus who can transform. That we've got to address inner issues dealing with destructive behavior. But most of the conversations I've ended up having with Christians who are against drinking end up boiling down to one underlying point. They claim, while I concede that the Bible doesn't prohibit a Christian from drinking, friend, you'd be a better Christian like me if you didn't drink. That's where it always comes back to. It's the same reasoning behind all of the limiting of liberty. Though we have all been saved by Jesus, it ends up being the Christian who abstains from filling the blank that is morally superior to the one that doesn't. Honestly, it's pharisaical. Frankly, the reason this line of thinking, thinking doesn't jive with me and why, honestly, I've, I've, <laughs> I've fought to defend my rights as well as many of yours to enjoy liberty, it's costed me things personally. The reason I've taken the approach is that such a position is nothing more than a gospel distortion founded upon a false sense of moralism self-justification, or an unhealthy view of your role even in sanctification. Now, I, I know that that's, that's kind of a heavy statement. But the reality is that most of the arguments advocating for the prohibition of alcohol or, or any liberty, they fundamentally oppose grace, period, because they claim that a person, that what a person does or what a person abstains from doing 
plays a role in that individual sanctification. Now, what does sanctification mean? It's kind of a fancy word, right? You don't use it in normal vernacular. It's not like you're uh, watching the game with your buddies and be like, man, you know, the sanctification of that play was amazing. Like, it's, it's like one of those words you don't roll with in typical common lingo. And yet, well, sanctification in a Christian context, it's, it's the process of becoming sanctified or, from a biblical standpoint, becoming more like Jesus. You get saved. So, so you've been made alive from death to life. But then there's a, a work that continues. Salvation doesn't end the moment you give your life to Jesus. There's a process of salvation, of being saved, of becoming more like Jesus. Paul will write in Hebrews of, of laying aside sin and weight that slow us down, that ensnare us, running the race before us. That sanctification, there's a process of becoming like Jesus. And what ends up happening is people claim that with that process, what you do and what you refrain from doing are central to sanctification. What that ties into historically is the idea that you are saved by faith, but you're sanctified by works. That yes, you couldn't save yourself. That required a work of Jesus. And yet, now that Jesus has saved you, <laughs> I got it from there, bro. Like, we're good. Me and Jesus tag-teaming it. I'll become more like Jesus. It's a heresy, honestly. While the Bible is crystal clear, and don't mistake this, that drunkenness is a sin. I'll take it a step further. It's a sin and consistent with a life that understands grace and being changed by grace. I think we can all universally agree upon that. The truth is that drinking alcohol or abstaining from alcohol has zero bearing on your right standing before God. Please know that. You're like, I drink a beer and that makes me better than somebody else. Like, I get this liberty. No, you're a moron. On the flip side to it, if you take the approach of like, I don't drink alcohol and that makes me a holier person. No, it doesn't. It doesn't at all. And you can't point to any scriptural justification for that. Understand. If you have the personal conviction that you need to abstain from drinking, you absolutely have that right. You have that freedom. You have that prerogative. As long as you realize the following. One, you have no biblical right to impose that conviction onto someone else. As we discussed last Sunday, there's only one person that can limit liberty, and that's the liberator, not you. Two, separating yourselves from those who drink is wrong. I think, I think that's one of the things that really, you know, burn my crawl, is when I know people, that they go out with Christian brothers, and as soon as someone orders a beer, they leave. They would rather break fellowship because of their views on this, then be like, hey man, that's cool, that's your liberty, no problem. Like, it's, it's sad. So, don't impose your conviction on someone else. Don't separate yourself from a brother over it. And three, holding that position doesn't make you a better Christian than the person who, who doesn't. If you believe it does, you've adopted a legalistic mindset, you're under law and not grace. You see, as Christians... Know this, we are called to one moral standard. Do you know what it is? So often within the church, 
we, we get the idea. If, if I say, hey, are you a good person? You'll say, yeah, I'm a good person. But you know what you're actually saying? If we can, if we can be honest. You're actually saying, I'm a good person <clears throat> because I'm not that person. Like, like you'll, you'll find someone that you feel as though isn't kind of, they don't have it all together like you do. And you're like, yeah, I'm a good person because I don't have their issues. So that makes me better. What we do is we reach a sense of moral superiority based upon the comparison of faulty standards, each other. Because you're as messed up as I am. And yeah, I'm pretty messed up. You see, there's only one moral standard we're supposed to compare ourselves to. And that's Jesus. And if you do that, and I say, hey, are you a good person? It's like, well, compared to Jesus, no, not even close. I'm glad I've been saved by grace. I'm glad it's not about me, because I fall short of the glory of God. Ever heard that phrase? Yeah, it's a biblical, it's a biblical one. Jesus, friend, is the template for what a godly life should look like. Not me. I'm doing my best in God's grace. But if you want to really know what Christ-likeness looks like, here's a novel idea. Look at Christ. I want to become more like Jesus. Then you should look at Jesus and compare yourself there. Because I don't wear his name tag. Nor do you. So we look to Jesus as the standard. And you know what? And a culture that also had a major problem with alcoholism, the first century, here's something most people don't like to say. Jesus drank, he drank responsibly, and he did so publicly. Now, many people overlook passages like what we find in Matthew 11. Matthew 11, verse, verse 19, this is, what we're, this is what we're told. That the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came eating and drinking, that word drink is not, it doesn't mean he had a juice box. Drinking. So much that they said of him. They said, look at him. A glutton. Which means this is Christ-like. <laughs> and a drunkard. That was the accusation of Jesus. That word drunkard literally means one given to wine. And then they also said, he's a friend of tax collectors. Democrats, <laughs> and sinners. That was the accusation of Jesus. Like, how interesting. That wasn't in my notes, I apologize. It's always dangerous when I get away from my notes. How interesting, right? That the religious right in Jesus' day, the moral majority, accused Jesus of drinking too much. That was the accusation. Hard to make that accusation if he abstained from drinking. Not to mention the first miracles, turning water into really good wine. People had fun. That's another topic. Paul. As Paul continues his letter to the Galatians, specifically following his full rebuttal of these men who had come teaching gospel distortions, Paul transitions to focus on this situation with Peter and Antioch. Why? He does this in order to address a perplexing and in many ways logical question that would be on the mind of anyone in his audience. 
If the matter of grace period had been settled so many years earlier, Acts 15, why is it now resurfacing again in Galatia? Why are these men preaching such a gospel distortion? And you know, in a culture, a church culture, known more by what we restrict than what we enjoy, that question is just as relevant today. By the way, isn't that a shame that Christians are known more by what we're against than what we're for, what we restrict, than what we enjoy? I believe that Paul, he brings up this entire situation with Peter in order to answer this kind of hypothetical question by illustrating for us how easy it is for anyone. Listen, if Peter could fall into the trappings of legalism, so can you, so can I. Like, it's amazing to consider that of all the people, it was Peter who took this approach with Gentiles in Antioch. Why? Well, because in Acts 11, Peter returns to Jerusalem after taking the gospel into the Gentile world. Let me read you a few verses from Acts 11. We're told that now the apostles and the brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. And Peter comes to Jerusalem, and some of the circumcision, same crew, they contended with him, saying, if you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter explained to them in order from the beginning, saying, and he kind of recounts the events, I was in the city of Joppa praying. In a trance I had this vision. An object descended like a great sheet. Let down from heaven by four corners, it came to me, and I observed, intently considered. I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord. For nothing common or unclean has at any time entered this mouth. But the voice answered again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. It was followed by a dun-dun-dun in the Greek. Now this was done, we're told, three times. And all were drawn up again into heaven. And at that moment, three men stood at the house where I was staying, Peter says, having been sent from Caesarea. And then the Spirit told me, the Holy Spirit, to go with them and not to doubt anything. Moreover, I had six brethren accompany me. They're with me now. And we entered this man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, send men to Joppa, call for Simon, whose name is Peter. He'll tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. So Peter jumps in, he starts explaining how to be saved. And then he says, as I was speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just like us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then he begins to wrap it up. He says, if therefore God gave them, the Gentiles, the same gift that he gave us, the Holy Spirit, when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? Peter's like, you, you really wanted me in such an environment? You'd be like, time out. We got to get circumcised first. Then the Holy Spirit can do his thing. Got to rid the house of bacon bits. And then here we go. Like, he's like, how could I withstand God? Like what God was doing. And then the crowd when they heard these things, they, they grew silent. And they glorified the Lord. They said, God has also granted to the Gentiles the repentance of life. You see, just a few years before Peter travels to Antioch and effectively steps in it and gets called out accordingly, he had been accused of the very thing he feared most. 
Jewish legalists, the circumcision, publicly questioning his decision to eat with the Gentiles. They come and they confront him. Explain yourself. And yet in that instance, as we just read, Peter doesn't placate to their sensibilities. He doesn't tiptoe around the truth so he doesn't offend someone. Instead, Peter, man, he jumps to the forefront. He boldly defends his actions and the truth of the gospel. Again, let me read a section of Acts 15. We're told that that when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and he said to them, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose among us, chose me, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them. Note this, purifying their hearts, how? By faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples? A yoke, he then adds, that neither our fathers nor we were able to bear, but we believe, and note, that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall all be saved in the same manner as they. So how is it that Peter, a bold defender of the gospel, intellectually he knows it, how does he now find himself in Antioch slipping into legalism? And here's the answer. If you really want an application, this is it. The law, what you do or don't do, will become your natural default anytime you take your eyes off Jesus. You see, the lie of the various gospel distortions is, is that, something, that something can actually be added to the message of grace. You know, grace, grace needs no co-laborer. It doesn't need a partner. As a matter of fact, when you attempt to give it one, it just stands back and becomes hands off. Adding something to to the gospel, no matter what the intention, no longer makes it the gospel. Let me repeat that. It's important. Adding something to the gospel, no matter the intention, no longer makes it the gospel. In Galatians 1, verses 6 and 7, Paul writes, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from Jesus, who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. And then he says, which is not a different gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel. Because the old covenant of law was instituted by God to deal with our fallen nature, whereas the new covenant of grace was designed to operate within a new nature, brought forth by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Grace, period. God's grace, friend, is this. It's an either-or proposition. It cannot be added to anything. You are either abiding in God's grace, or you're trying to measure up to God's law. You are either free, or you're in bondage somehow. Your right standing before God is either earned or it's given, maintained or enjoyed, marked by a clenched fist or illustrated with an open hand. You're either approaching God, friend, at Mount Sinai or Golgotha. You're either holding on to tablets of stone or you're bending your knee before a wooden cross. It's either Moses or 
or it's Jesus. It's either an example to emulate or a savior to intervene. It's religion or it's relationship. It's either your works or it's his work. It's either your striving or his sufficiency. When it comes to God's favor, it's either achieved by you or it's accepted by you, given by Jesus. The life you have now, it's either walking in his spirit or walking in your flesh. It's God's grace or it's God's law. It's always one or the other. It's either or. You see, the either or reality of God's grace explains why any time we take our eyes off of Jesus, we inevitably run back to the law. Because it's either Jesus, it's either all of Jesus, or it's none of Jesus. Jesus won't be added to something. While grace is conditioned for the life and the spirit, it is our flesh that so quickly reverts back to the law to feed its craving for self-righteousness, self-justification. The law is always the default mode of our fallen sin nature. If you feel the need to abstain from alcohol, man, that's fine. As long as you don't come to see that decision as making you a better Christian from the person that doesn't share that conviction. Such an approach is not yielded by grace. It's the law feeding a sense of self-moralism, a moral standing. And that's why it is so important for us as a church. Why it's important for us to reiterate these concepts often so we can safeguard against the slippery, subtle incursions of legalism. No Christian freed by Jesus is excited about bondage. You know what I mean? It's not something you're like, yeah, this is where I'm going. I've been set free by Jesus, free from the world. Now I just can't wait to put some different shackles on. Like it's not the intention, but legalism is so slippery that over time we begin to adopt certain things. A few years ago, when we were discussing originally the importance of the, our original outlaw series in Galatians, we were talking about these things, and a dear friend of mine, Gary Lawler, Gary's sitting back there, he said something that's always stuck with me. He said, Galatians, man, is my go-to book anytime I feel the Pharisee in me starting to raise its ugly head. Amen and Amen. You see, rules to obey, this is why it's dangerous. It does nothing more than elevate the position of self. And why is that dangerous? Self doesn't have a position in the life of Christ. It should be dead and buried. See, legalistic tendencies in my life always need to be addressed not only for how they negatively affect the people around me, and they will. They will destroy the joy that Christian community should have in grace. But I should, I should safeguard against legalism. Here's why. Because it indicates something is happening in my heart that's not good. Is grace enough? Because if it isn't, the problem isn't grace the problem is I'm departing from grace. 
You know the good news about this battle royale recorded between the Apostle Paul and Peter? The epic cage match is that in the end, it seems there's evidence that Peter was like, oh my goodness gracious, Paul, you're right. What in the world am I doing? Let me read you Peter's final words. Like the final thing he says that we have recorded in 2 Peter 3, this is what he says. He says, therefore, beloved, he's writing to the church, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by Jesus in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all of his epistles. And then I love like the little jab. He says, you know, speaking in them things which are sometimes hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do the rest of Scripture. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, here's the exhortation, beware. Beware of what? Of all the things Peter wants you to be aware of, to be on guard about, to safeguard against, of all the things, from Peter's perspective, this is what he said, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the air of the wicked. And to safeguard it, this is what I want you to do. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he says to him, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Since I introduced the topic of alcohol to illustrate this point of limiting liberty, I do want to kind of tie things up before we close about alcohol. First, drunkenness is a sin. And since alcohol yields drunkenness, I don't know if you're aware, um, it demands prudency. It's impossible to get a DUI if you don't drink and drive. Common sense. Two, think about why you're drinking. If you do enjoy the liberty, consider why. If you like the taste of scotch, red, red wine pairs nicely with your meal. NASCAR is unwatchable without a cold beer. You need a cold one because it's refreshing after a hard day's work. A nightcap helps you unwind. Whatever it happens to be, enjoy and do it responsibly. However, if you find yourself drinking because you're depressed or you can't unwind or have fun without it or it numbs some pain, you're in a dangerous place because alcohol has become an idol and it will prove to be a terrible savior. In the end, since sanctification, right, is the process of God's grace and the indwelling of God's spirit making you more like Jesus, my exhortation with drinking is very simple. If sanctification is being like Jesus, drink like Jesus drank, and you'll be okay. Thirdly, if you don't want to drink, don't like the taste, you possess a personal conviction that it would be dangerous given your already addictive and probably terrible personality. <laughs> don't drink. It's okay. It's that simple. That said, don't, don't be pushy. 
Don't limit liberty. And if you're uncomfortable, if you're uncomfortable around someone that does drink, tell them. And give them the freedom to make a decision. That they'll abstain from drinking to hang out with you or that they'll drink to keep you away. You might be that annoying. Let me close things up this way. Legalism is born in fear, not faith. It relies on law, not grace. It emphasizes my sacrifice, not his. It fosters a sense of moral superiority. It appeals to my flesh, making legalism contagious, ultimately divisive, and in the end, destructive. But the gospel is born in faith, not fear. Relying on grace, not law. Emphasizing his sacrifice, not mine. Fostering a sense of moral humility, consistent with his spirit. Making the gospel contagious ultimately unifying, and in the end, enjoyable and uplifting. And so, Father, Lord, we thank you for your...